what I'd like to speak about tonight, that's good, um, is really what is at the foundation of the instructions for this retreat and really for this form of practice that has been entered into by human beings for 2,500 years within this tradition and for many, many years in other traditions as well. And that is the foundations of mindfulness itself. The ancient teachings of the elders in Buddhism from which this tradition comes um, record the Buddha saying, my friends, there is a most wonderful way for living beings to realize purification, overcome directly grief and sorrow, to end pain and anxiety, to travel the path of wakefulness and compassion and realize liberation. And this is the establishment of mindfulness. It's kind of an invitation that the Buddha offered in this gathering in the forest. He said, and what is this establishment of mindfulness? It is four areas or four dimensions of our life within which we can pay attention. My friends, a practitioner remains established in awareness of the body in the body. The practitioner remains established in awareness of the feelings in the feelings. The practitioner remains established in awareness of the mind in the mind. The practitioner remains established in awareness of the dharma, of the laws, within the dharma, within the laws of things. Present, diligent, with clear understanding, mindful, having abandoned both grasping and distaste for what is so, seeing it just as it is. There is a wonderful way of practice to find liberation, says the Buddha. So it's an invitation. He says, how does one do this? Go to a quiet place, to a forest, to a desert, to an empty place, and let yourself be seated and begin to pay attention to this human life that we've been given. The main gate of awakening in this practice that's been handed down by the elders for so many years is the gate of mindfulness. And mindfulness really means the fullness of being or presence with things as they are. And it's called the gate to the deathless because by opening to where we are, to the reality of the present, we can enter into that which is timeless. What is mindfulness? Mindfulness is the quality that we all know, we've been practicing, of being present for this moment's experience without grasping it, without judging it, without resisting it, without wanting it to be different, without expecting it to change, simply listening, a kind of sensitivity or openness, a balance, an openness of heart and mind, of eyes and ears, to actually be with life as it is without some agenda. And it's kind of an amazing thing because we live so much of our life with an agenda. And our culture has taught us to do that so that we're doing all the time rather than being. Mindfulness is the invitation to be present just 
the way things are and to understand them as they are. The sound, maybe the image, helicopter, marine base, the largest marine base in the U.S. is just down the road. You can hear them sometimes bombing, practicing. One fears for who they will bomb next, but that's a whole other story. You may think as you come on retreat that there's some experience that's supposed to happen for you. Some special thing that if you practice hard and sit and walk and really give yourself to it, that you will get the answer. That you will have this experience, this thing that will come. But there is no enlightened retirement. There's no thing that's going to come that you can hold on to. What mindfulness is, is the willingness to live in the reality of what is so just now, with openness, with wisdom, with compassion. There was a cartoon in the San Francisco Chronicle last, oh, a year or two ago, and it showed uh, a desert with several camels, and it was clearly a family. There was the father on the first big camel with baggage and things like that, and then the mother on camel number two with her various things that the camel carried and then two or three smaller camels with the children following. And the father was turning back to talk to the last of the children, and, and the caption underneath or from him said, stop asking when we're going to get there. We're nomads for crying out loud. <laughs> right? What you discover in the retreat, you probably discovered already, is how amazingly things can change from moment to moment, from hour to hour. And the reality of mindfulness is that invitation to be present for things as they are and not in our ideas of how they should be. We all know it, but you know there are moments when we're there and then moments where we have all these expectations. True mindfulness has both tenderness and strength to it. This poem, which was from my wife's calligraphy teacher, this master calligrapher, written um, Lloyd Reynolds, uh, I like very much. He writes, A bug crawls over the paper. Leave him be. We need all the readers we can get. I mean, we have all these ideas about where bugs should be or what should happen with our body or where our mind should be and so forth. And one of the qualities of mindfulness is its respect for things as they are. And with that, there's a a tenderness, a non-judging, an openness. At the same time, there's a strength to it, to see what is actually so. Before we respond in any way, we have to see the truth. Robert Frost put it this way, anything more than the truth would be too much. That simple. And the strength of it... um, if you, uh, you know, think of it in other terms, Martin Luther King talked about it when he said, where are we? Speaking of the difficulties in the um, 1960s that, um, and the suffering and the bombings of his church, To his community, he said, we will meet your capacity to inflict suffering 
with our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. We will not hate you, but we cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws. And we will soon wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And in winning our freedom, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win yours as well. There's a quality of mindfulness that one could call not just presence, but sacred presence, of being with things as they are, with the strength of the soul or the spirit that respects this human life as it is. That's the strength, and yet with it a tenderness. So it's receptive and present, and yet quite alive to notice what's so. Now how to do this, not as a philosophy, but again as an invitation to freedom. And freedom is is so interesting. This is from Nelson Mandela speaking after he became the president of South Africa. He said, the truth is we are not yet free. We have merely achieved the freedom to be free, the right not to be oppressed. And we may have that in our life. We have the capacity to be free. The invitation is to really be free, which is to be free in the heart. So how to do so? That's really what we've been practicing in this simple way. And we keep the retreat simple, not a lot of things happening, so that human beings can come and be, we can be with ourselves as we are. First, mindfulness of the body. Remember that foundation of mindfulness? One becomes aware of, uh, remains established in awareness of, of the body in the body. Breathing in, aware of breathing in. Breathing out, aware of breathing out. Breathing in long or short breath, knowing this is long or short breath. Being aware of standing or sitting, of lying down, of bending the arms, of moving. Beginning to pay attention to the experiences of the body, to the sounds at the ear, to the sights at the eye, to the taste and the tongue, the smells of the nose. So the invitation is to stop, and come back to ourselves, come back to our senses, and sit and stand, and begin most simply, if we want to live in the reality of the present, with this human experience of the breath. Feel each breath as it comes in, as if it were your first breath, like a baby, or as if it were your last breath, just getting, you know, lying there and life is ending, and what does this breath feel like if it were the last? It's so simple. And yet it has a, a, a remarkable quality to it. Because to come back to the breath is to come back to the living reality of the present and not our ideas about it. And even in 10 minutes of breathing, you can, you can do this. Notice it. It's possible to heal or open or untie incredible knots. You're sitting there and there's this whole story. He did and she did and there's distress and anger and, and frustration and I did, and I wish I had, and you know those stories and all the feelings? And then you feel your breath, and then the story comes again, and I wish, and only they, and you breathe a little bit more, and sometimes in 10 minutes, oh, that's really a whole story, isn't it? And then we just come back to being alive and breathing, and step out of the contraction, the layers of that story. So the breath is really an invitation to come back to live in our body, rather than, you know, as that line in James Joyce says, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body, rather than living someplace else to live here. I mean, where else would we awaken? Where else could we love? 
Where else could we see what's true? Now, as you do, as we do on retreat, of course, we've talked about it, there's not just pleasure in the body, there's pleasure and pain. And for some people, pleasure is scary. It's hard to be with pleasure. Ooh, what should I do with that? For others, it's the pain that's difficult. And you feel the pain, and you try to move and squirm and get rid of it. But pain is actually just the name. What is pain? In your knee or your back or your shoulders? If you feel it carefully, it's not the word pain, but there's an aliveness that has fire and twisting and throbbing and tingling. And anything that we pay attention to in the body becomes more alive in our awareness. Because it is alive. And the words, you know, are just at some other distance. But if we feel into it, whatever we pay attention to isn't those words, it's this aliveness itself. If we can't be with pain, we can't be alive very well. Because half of life is painful. If we can't be with pleasure, we can't be alive either very well. Because half of life is pleasurable. So to actually be present, we practice this mindfulness of being with the body. You sit, and the layers of tension show themselves. And it's not to fix them, but to be present with tenderness, with this body. Let things open as they will. And how do you touch the pains that come to you as you sit? Or how do you touch the pleasures that come? With fear, or with grasping, or with resistance? Or is it possible to receive them with openness, with a mindfulness, and just be? A kind of relearning. This is a deep process. You can feel it. I mean, some people come, and what their 10 days is about is just their body unclenching. And it's an incredible gift, because you walk out in the desert after day seven, and you realize your body feels open in ways it hasn't for a long time. Alice Miller, who writes... See if I can find it. The truth about our childhood is stored up in our body, and although we can repress it, we can never alter it. Our intellect can be deceived, our feelings manipulated, our conceptions confused, our body tricked with medication, but someday our body will present its bill, for it is as incorruptible as a child who, still whole in spirit, will accept no compromises or excuses, and it will not stop tormenting us until we stop evading its truth. So there's something really honorable about sitting with our body, with all the things that come up, and the joys, and the pains, and the tension, and the pleasure. And there's an innocence to it as well. You feel that sometimes. You go out walking meditation, and you take a step, and it's like you're two years old again, just putting your foot on the desert. You know the story of this little girl whose mother would go off to the university to teach. She was like six or seven years old. Her mother was an art professor. So she said to her, Mommy, what do you do at work? One morning. And her mother looked back and said, Well, I work at the university, and I teach people how to draw. And her little girl looked back at her and said, You mean they forget? (laughs) And there's something that we forget in this kind of culture. We're so far away from the life of the instinct and the body, from the life of the wisdom that was there in all the ancient cultures. And to come to retreat is really to come back to that. It's such a gift. It's a gift to ourselves, and it's also a gift to others, because only to the extent that we can inhabit this body wisely can we make a wise contact with the earth or with another human being. 
a story from Richard Selzer, a surgeon at Yale University. I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clown-like. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be this way from now on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands opposite me in the bed, and they seem to dwell together in the evening lamplight, private, isolated from me. Who are they, I ask, who touch each other so generously? The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say it will. It's because the nerve was cut. She nods, is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. And all at once I know who he is. I understand and lower my gaze, for one is not bold in an encounter with the gods. And unaware of my presence, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I so close I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. And I remember that the gods appeared in ancient Greece as mortals, and I hold my breath and let the wonder in. The invitation from the Buddha is to bring a presence to this human body, to the breath, to the pains and pleasures, and to allow it to open, as it will, and to find a freedom in it. And the freedom isn't that it won't get sick and it won't get old, or that it won't change, because it will. It will get old, and it will get sick, and it will change. But the freedom comes in knowing the body for what it is and feeling its preciousness and realizing that we don't own or possess it, but we can hold it with great wisdom. Do you understand this? The Tibetan master Tsongkhapa said, this human body is more precious than the rarest jewels. Cherish your body. It's yours this one time only. This human form is one with difficulty and easy to lose. All things are so brief in this world, like lightning in the sky, a tiny splash of a raindrop, a thing of beauty that passes away as another comes into being. Therefore, set your heart and treasure this life you've been given, for this is all that matters. Mindfulness of the body, not to think about it, but to feel how it's changing, how the breath moves, the play of sensations, pleasant and painful, the opening and closing, and to touch it as that young man did, with that kind of mercy, so that it's respected and and healed and allowed to be, you know, what it really is as a human form. That's what brings us freedom. Mindfulness of feelings. The Buddha goes on, if we undertake this great task of seeking liberation, not only are we mindful of this human form, but of the feelings. And what does it mean to be mindful of feelings in the feelings? The practitioner is established in awareness of pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neutral feelings in body and in mind, being aware as they arise, experiencing them for what they are. 
Usually, we experience pleasant things and our habit is to grasp. We've talked about that. Unpleasant things we resist. Neutral things we're bored. We sort of go to sleep. We look for something else. And so we swing back and forth all the time. Not terribly human, but really lost in habit. To be aware of feelings is an amazing thing. Both the root feelings of pleasant and unpleasant and neutral, each moment has, and then all the elaborations of feelings, in English, of the emotions that come with it. Because feelings are always here. You know, you sit and the top ten tunes come and they, you know, tell you stories about your past or stories about your future. And if you notice with these repeated thoughts that come, usually with them there's some feeling. You're thinking about the future and over and over and then you realize, oh, I'm anxious. And if you can feel the feeling, the thoughts will quiet down sometimes. Or you're remembering the past over and over and you realize, oh, I feel guilty or longing or whatever it is. And you feel that longing or guilt and the thoughts quiet down because you've let yourself feel. We're distant from our feelings in this culture and maybe in this modern world. And the feelings come because they want acceptance. They actually want to be felt and known. And the practice of mindfulness, of sacred present, is to notice what's so, the feelings, the painful ones, the pleasant ones, the neutral ones, as they are, with respect. It doesn't have to be some great feeling. Sometimes people weep, you know, and they say, I wish I wasn't crying so much. And the person next to them is jealous and saying, I haven't cried, I'm not having a good retreat. We have our ideas of what's supposed to happen for us, right? The person who's crying always thinks it's too much, and the person who's not crying always thinks it's not enough. Wallace Stevens, the poet, writes, I don't ask for the full ringing of the bell. I don't ask for a clap of thunder that would rent the veil in the temple. A scrawny cry will do from far off among the willows and cattails, from far off there among the galaxies. To let ourselves be aware of feelings, again, has a sensitivity and a respect in it. And sometimes on retreats, um, I read a list from this list that I got when I was studying psychology in graduate school of 500 feelings. You know, joyful, sorrowful, sad, sanguine, sublime, silly, sexual, struggling, stubborn, compassionate, confused, clear, calm, centered, crabby, concerned, conceited, conciliatory, delighted, depressed, disgusted, um, appreciative, alive, apoplectic, argumentative, and it just goes on and on. It's amazing we have such a rich feeling life, and yet often we're out of touch with it. In reading this book of Robert Johnson's, a Jungian analyst, he's talking about the loss of connection with feeling, and, and even the impoverishment in our language in some ways, that as you know, you've all heard this, English has one word for love, ancient Sanskrit had 35, ancient Persian had 80 words for love. There was a kind of sensitivity in it like this Eskimos who have 35 words for snow, new fallen, old snow, snow with a little crust on it, because you need to to survive. So in ancient Persian, imagine the richness of this. There was a word for love of one's father and a different word for love of one's mother. It's a different kind of love. And still another one for love of one's camel, right? (laughs) And one for one's lover and one exclusively for love of the sunset that that word was that kind of love. So I see in some ways that our work here, in terms of feeling, is to learn to reclaim this capacity to feel, 
without which life is not only impoverished, but we don't have a way to guide it. Because God help you if you guide your life just from your thoughts. I mean, there isn't love in thoughts. And there isn't um, compassion in thoughts. Thoughts are very helpful, but hopefully they're not in the lead. So what does that mean? It means just when we sit and feel the breath or we feel the play of sensations in the body, so too we begin to notice that each experience might be pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, and that with it can come various emotions like the weather. The changes is fast. The clouds come. There's sadness and longing and excitement and love. And as you pay attention to feelings, the task is a very simple one. It's just to notice what's present, to actually be respectful of this feeling not to fix it, one of three things will happen when you pay attention to feelings. They will go away, they will stay the same, or they'll get worse, right? That's their job, right? Your job is to notice actually what is happening. And it's not just sitting, but it's, you know, walking all the practices we do. Here, a friend who was um, practicing on a long retreat I taught at the, the center in Massachusetts, um, had a lot of trouble with walking meditation. just didn't work very well for her. Um, and so I gave her different instructions to make it more interesting. She was still bored with it. I said, okay, you know, you want to learn how to walk, it's simple. Stop sitting and only walk all day and see what happens. You'll, you'll learn something. So she said, how about half a day? You know how yogis are, they're <laughs> bargaining, right? She left me this note. Dear Jack, long walking meditation all morning, assignment complete, thank you. Now I can meditate while moving. I thought I might be aware of all the reasons for my resistance, but circumstances taught me something more. I chose to walk in the lower walking room because it's small, beautiful, and usually quiet. Today, however, it was noisy as hell. There was some guy in there walking like the little engine that could, wearing noisy boots. Well, thought I, surely he'll be gone when the walking period ends. No such luck. This madman paced and pounded his way through an hour and a half nonstop, except when he paused to drink or remove a noisy layer of clothing. (laughs) I tried metta. Surely he must have a lot of pain to be so driven, etc. (laughs) Then I realized that I wanted to kill the SOB. I stood there and noted it, hating, hating, hating. (laughs) Then I stopped in the middle of the room and just wept, tears, tears, tears. Then I got to the point where I realized whatever problem he had was his and not mine. And after that, I got quiet, and he was just sound. And so I walked and breathed, and he paced and pounded, and pretty soon it was all the same to me. His noise, my breath, the movement of my body, and after an hour and a half, he left. And then it was incredibly quiet, which was different, but not so much better as I would have expected. (laughs) Mostly just different. Thank you, I think I have learned something from this walking practice. So do you understand that? That there you are walking and all these feelings present themselves. And the idea is not to change them or fix them or judge them, but to come to know the life of feeling itself. And with that, as with the body, there comes a kind of spaciousness. That's why mindfulness is the invitation to freedom. We realize we don't possess the body, that it does what it does. And we can care for it, but we can't say, don't grow old or don't feel pain. And we realize we don't possess feelings that they feel themselves, to feel feelings in the feelings, and let them come and go, and just be present and awake with them. And what comes out of it is a remarkable and wonderful kind of trust, because we discover that we don't have to act on them, 
all the time anyway. You can choose which one to act. If you acted on them all, you'd be in trouble, right? But we also don't have to get lost in them or suppress them. We can actually respect this feeling life. And the trust that comes um, is a beautiful thing. I'll I, I, I tell you a story, or read you a story. This is from a passage in this book I've just finished doing. After many years of retreats, both Catholic and Buddhist, I went to a long solitary retreat and the indescribable happened. The closest I can say is to use St. Augustine's words, I saw that God was closer to me than I was to myself. God was like a vast ocean and everything I was used to experiencing as myself was a thin membrane floating on the surface, insubstantial, then gone. When the bliss and divine openness that came with this realization subsided some months later, I fell into profound heaviness and dread. It was the beginning of a period of hell. After a huge emotional outpouring, everything became stuck, deadness, no feeling. I moved from the Buddhist center back to Ohio to be near my daughter, took a meaningless job. My body developed asthma, hives, the endless inner pain and loss made me feel desperate, close to suicide, psychosis. Though outside I looked normal, prayer, meditation, everything became impossible. This is really like the dark night of the soul that St. John writes about. After months of the suffering, I finally got so overwhelmed, I threw myself down on the bathroom floor and cried out to God for mercy because I couldn't go on. In an instant, the whole tortured state of being drained out of me like water out of a bathtub. For two hours, I sat there on the floor of the bathroom in bliss, joy, peace, as I had during that retreat. I saw that all the difficulty was God's work, and I remembered my trust in God and that these sorrows are a part of the path. And after two hours rest, I was able to acknowledge that I could take it and that if it was part of God's work, I wanted it. And the very moment I saw that, unbelievably, it all came right back, rising up from below as if the bathtub were <laughs> filling up again. Everything was exactly as before, exactly as painful and terrible, but that tiny period of mercy made all the difference. I knew I could take it and that I wanted to live through whatever God had given me no matter what. A huge gratitude arose for the grace and tenderness God showed to me then like the tenderest of mothers following just out of sight, longing to help and catch us if we fall. It was there in the worst of my pain that I learned I had no choice but to live in trust and grace. So we learn a kind of trust and a kind of grace that's the grace to know our human feelings and to respect them and also to have a kind of freedom that's not lost in each feeling, pleasant or neutral or unpleasant, but respectful of them as they come and go. Mindfulness of the mind. The third great task in this invitation for awakening. So in the text again, the Buddha's invitation. How does the practitioner remain established in mindfulness of the mind? The practitioner becomes aware this is the desiring mind. This is the non-desiring mind. This is the angry mind. This is the non-angry mind. This is the ignorant mind. This is the clear mind. This is the mind filled with tension. This is the mind that's relaxed and at ease. This is the mind distracted. This is the mind that's open. This is the mind filled with thought. This is the mind free in the midst of thought. So one begins to look at the mind itself. Now things get really difficult. 
You know, you thought your body was difficult, you know, and that emotions were difficult. Annie Lamott, the humorist, wrote, she said, my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I try not to go there alone, right? (laughs) It is a thought factory. It tells endless stories, and it can tell terrible stories and good stories, and, and the problem is we believe it. My God. Carlos Castaneda, who writes, you talk to yourself too much. You're not unique in that. Everyone does. We maintain our world with our inner dialogue. A man or woman of knowledge is aware that the world will change completely as soon as they stop talking to themselves. Or Buddhadasa, this great elder of the tradition of, of the forest monas- monastic where Carol and I both studied. When somebody asked Ajahn Buddhadasa what he thought about, you know, how it seemed to him the modern world was from his perspective, or what would he say about the modern world, he said three words, lost in thought. And we are so much of the time. Stories, beliefs, how it should be, how it might be, our plans, our memories, you know, all centering around you-know-who, as Miss Piggy says, moi, you know. (laughs) And we think it's happening to us, but Rabindranath Tagore puts it this way. He says, most of us believe that the mind is like a mirror, more or less accurately reflecting the impressions of the world around us, and not realizing the fact, on the contrary, that the mind is the principal element of creation. So we sit, And as we become quiet, breath, body, feelings come and go, we also begin to actually know what the mind is doing instead of being lost in it by habit. And a kind of remarkable freedom can come when we can see the stories and the beliefs and realize that that's not who we are. Mark Twain put it this way. He said, my life has been filled with terrible misfortunes most of which never happened, right? So we have all these ideas about who we are or how the world is. Um, And in the moment of mindfulness, what we do is just as if to bow to it and say, thinking or planning or there's an opinion or there's the judging mind. Oh, I should stop judging. I hate that judgment. Don't judge anymore, right? What's that? There's more of the judging mind or the doubting mind. I mean, and on retreats, it can be really kind of astonishing, you know. It can be about people around us in in aversive ways. Um, Let's see. Uh, This is um, a Catholic, uh, an, an elder sister in a Catholic monastery. She said, in my second community, there were only a dozen nuns. I liked all but two. One was lazy and the other was self absorbed. After my first year, I was in the kitchen complaining to a friend who said, you know, these are really not bad people. What is it that gets to you? And I said, well, one is lazy and the other takes too much care of herself. And she replied, well, you ought to be more lazy and take better care of yourself. You know how we have all these stories and often they're projected on that person. We don't know them at all. Like the Vipassana romance that was talked about. I mean, you want to hear a a bad story, not a horrible, but a, a, a certain kind of story. This person at a three-month retreat at IMS in Barrie had this crush on somebody of the Pasana romance and never talked to the person. was really a good yogi, but all the fantasies came. And then it was near the end of the retreat. There's a week-long integration period, or sometimes it's called disintegration week, but whatever. <laughs> and, um, 
coming out to speak with one another. And she wanted to make sure that this man, who she was really um, hot on, you know, that, that he kind of knew. So she composed, before they started to speak, a day or so before, this kind of love letter, I've been watching you, and, you know, I've been sitting, and, and it feels like we're meant to come together. And, you know, all the, you can imagine what the letter was like. And then she folded it up, and she put it into his shoes, into his Birkenstocks. Unfortunately, um, it was the Birkenstocks of this other guy. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> Who got this letter and opened it, you know, and she signed it, right? And there it was, oh, I have dreams of you, and so forth. <laughs> so there was... And I tell the story because um, it's important to see the power of the what, how we get caught in it. So to be mindful is not to deny the mind or to stop the thinking, which you can't do for very long anyway, but it's more like Ulysses when he was going where, where the sirens were, you know, and he had the, he had the uh, sailors of his ship uh, stuff wax and cotton in their ears so they wouldn't be called by the sirens. But he said, I want to hear the sirens. And he had them uh, bind him to the mast so that even though he cried to them, you know, please let me go, I want to visit the sirens and so forth, he was tied to the mast and they couldn't hear his cries. And there's a certain way in the meditation, that may be a little bit, you know, too strong an image, <laughs> But I don't know, your mind is, is probably worse than the sirens, you know. The sirens can be seductive, but your mind, my God. Um, the power of mindfulness is to find that center pole, that mass, that steadiness, to know what is so, to see it as it is. And in that way, a real freedom comes. Ajahn Sumedho, my friend who's an abbot in England, he said, the mind is like space. There's room in it for everything or nothing. We always have a perspective once we learn this space of mind, its emptiness. Armies can come into the mind and leave, butterflies, rain clouds, tragedy, comedy, or nothing at all. All things can come and go through us without being caught in reaction or resistance because we understand the nature of the mind itself. This is a great thing to learn. This is again the invitation to freedom, to know the body, to know the feelings, to know this human mind that we've been given. And you know, in the beginning you're lost all the time and there's a few breaths. And now midway through the retreat, you have a few more breaths and you're not so, you know, there are a few more holes in that vast thinking machine where we're with the breath or we're with a step. Or in the beginning, you know your thought, but only after you've thought it for 15 minutes, you kind of wake up, wow, I went all the way to Chicago, you know, and started a new business or whatever it was. And in the middle of the retreat, sometimes you wake up and realize, oh, I'm thinking. It's been a minute. It's been 30 seconds. Even when we start to get quiet, things get more subtle. Subtle sensations in the body, subtle breath. And then you start to feel, oh, there's a thought coming. It's a little like a burp. It just wants to kind of come out of its cave. Oh, there's a whole thought. And you see it. That's the thinking mind. Thank you for your opinion. And then back <laughs> to your breath. So the freedom comes in knowing this human experience as it is, resting in the reality of the present, but finding the space of mindfulness, which is bigger than the thoughts and the feelings and the sensations that come and go. And finally, the last of the foundations of mindfulness that we've been practicing is mindfulness of the Dharma, which means an awareness of the laws of the world. The Dharma is a Sanskrit word that means truth or 
teachings or the way things are or the eternal law. And so again, the invitation from the Buddha. How does the practitioner become aware of the Dharma in the Dharma? And one becomes aware of when one is filled with energy. One becomes aware of when one is not filled with energy. One becomes aware of when the mind is tight and caught. One becomes aware when the mind and body is released and not caught. One becomes aware of the senses as they appear and as they disappear. One becomes aware of suffering and the cause of suffering, the entanglement things in the world. One becomes aware of the release from suffering and the practice that brings that release from suffering. One becomes aware of when there's not freedom in the heart and mind, and one becomes aware when there is liberation or freedom in the heart and mind. So the awareness of the Dharma is really seeing the way things are, what brings freedom and what entangles us, the laws that govern this world. And it is the truth that liberates, says Krishnamurti, and not your efforts to be free. It's not, I'm going to be a free whatever it is, but rather it's seeing how things are in any moment. Oh, this is the way it is. Then the heart goes, oh, thank you. Finally, it's at peace with the world as it is. Now, what do we see if we look at the laws of our life? One of the things that's really obvious as retreat goes on more and more is how incredibly impermanent this human experience is how much things change. You pay attention to sensations and the deeper you feel into the body, to a breath or a pleasure or a tingle or a pain, the more it becomes little sparkles, all different things. You pay attention to feelings really closely, carefully, respecting feelings, and one comes, maybe it's sadness, and then a moment later it's followed by longing, and then that one turns into um, disappointment, and then disappointment disappears, and you say, I really did that well, and then you notice now there's pride. And then you think, oh, that's pride. I'm really being mindful. And then the thought says, I should do more of this, you know. And, and you begin to notice how the feelings and then the mind itself arise and pass so momentarily. And that what we are is a stream. We live generally in a small sense of self. A bear paced up and down the 20-foot length of his cage and went after 20 years The cage was removed. The bear continued to pace up and down those 20 feet. There's a certain way which you can feel that here you're sitting and, you know, anything's possible, but you see the habits that fix things. Instead of being with the change of things as they are, we're trying to make it different and comparing it to another time and grasping this and resisting that and wishing that things wouldn't change, that do, or wishing things that would change that don't change fast enough. To be aware of the Dharma is to start to see that things change of themselves all the time and to make our peace with that, as one Zen master said, is to discover nirvana. Also we discover that these things which change are not so solid. It all seems so real when we're caught up in something, doesn't it? But then another day later, it's gone. There you were in some state earlier in this retreat. Remember your most intense state, whether it was pleasant or painful or cold or whatever it was? Where is it? It is gone. When body and mind dissolve, says the Buddha, 
They do not exist anywhere, any more than musical notes lay heaped up somewhere. When a lute is played upon, there's no previous store of sound, and when the music ceases, it does not go anywhere in space. It came into existence on account of the structure of the instrument, the strings, and the exertion of the performer, and as it came into existence, so it passes away. In exactly the same way, the elements of body, the feelings, the experiences of mind arise in a moment due to certain causes and then pass away. See if this is not so. So there's a kind of openness that begins to come when we look deeply. We shift from the small sense of self to this spacious perspective of mindfulness. Somebody gave me a birthday card last year from the drugstore that has a picture. It's called the Dalai Lama's birthday party. So it has a picture of the Dalai Lama on it with his you know, trademark sunglasses with a big present that he's just unwrapped and all these smiling monks around him. And he's looking in this box and the caption over it says, wow, nothing, just what I always wanted. <laughs> the idea from the practice isn't that you get something. This isn't the place to get something. This is really the dump. This is the place to let go of stuff so that we can actually be open to the sunset or to our breath or to our human body, you know, or to what's given us on this earth. Again, from the Buddha. He says, suppose a man or woman who were not blind beheld the many bubbles on the Ganges as they floated along and watched and carefully examined And after they'd carefully examined them, they would appear empty, unreal, insubstantial. In exactly the same way does the practitioner become aware of the bodily phenomena, of feelings, of thoughts, perceptions, states of mind, as they arise and pass away, and by being present for them and examining them, they appear in the same way, momentary, empty, void, ungraspable, not belonging to a self. So one steps from the small sense of self, this kind of body of fear where we're contracted, to realizing that we participate all the time in this changing life and that we can trust it, that the breath breathes itself. We don't have to breathe the breath, that our feelings come of themselves, and that as we let go, there comes a natural understanding and wisdom and compassion that is there in you. It is your true nature or your Buddha nature, your natural wisdom. Our wisdom is only blocked by our fear. Our hearts are naturally compassionate. And there's a very deep sense of freedom that comes simply by letting ourselves see the way the world is and opening to it. And with that freedom, You know, I I speak about it so much here, what happens to us on retreat and the way we practice because I want to speak to the experiences we sit and walk. But there is also a, a very practical and radical change that happens to us in the world because to be aware of the laws of the world um, and the laws of life, to step out of the small sense of self and open ourselves means that we also live on this earth differently. And we'll talk more about that as we come toward the end of the retreat. But just to touch on it, Joanna Macy, who writes, scientists um, can see even more quickly than the politicians 
that there's no technological fix. There's no magic bullet, not the internet or more computers or anything of that kind that can save us from population explosion, deforestation, climate disruption, poison by pollution, continuing warfare and racism, and wholesale extinction of plant and animal species. You know, the more modern we've gotten, all that continues. We are going to have to want different things, seek different pleasures, pursue different goals than those that have been driving us and our global economy. What the world needs more than anything is a change of heart, a change of consciousness. And it's true as we sit and walk, and you can feel it in a moment of mindfulness, how you can step out of this whole small sense of self and let go. In a moment, there's freedom. I'll tell you a story that's um, much more on the practical level of this. I was on a retreat, not like this, but um, not so far from here in the mountains in Southern California, teaching with several other elders from various traditions, Maladoma Somme, who's an African medicine man, and Luis Rodriguez, who's a Latino elder who works a lot with youth gangs, and some others. And this was particularly a retreat that we'd chosen to have. We had a series of them on um, racism and the suffering in our culture that's brought about by this blindness, that a child can be born, and depending what color that child is, they will be treated entirely differently. I mean, if you can hear the insanity of that. So we had a hundred people in a room like this. We were doing various practices, Buddhist practices, African practices, um, um, Mayan, Aztec practices, and so forth. And we also had conversations, counsel with one another. And at one point, the topic of the um, riots or the insurrection in Los Angeles that happened some years ago came up, because there were a lot of people from LA, a number of young men. And people were trying to be honest with one another. It was a very difficult conversation. Um, And so at one point, one guy stood up, people were talking, this white guy, and he said, you know, when all those riots happened, he said, I got so frightened, they came within a couple miles of my house, so much was burning, that I went out and I got a gun to protect myself and my family. I put it under my pillow. And he said, that's how frightened I was. He was trying to be open. And he sat back down, and the minute he said that and sat down, about five black men stood up, and it was like somebody just turned the heat up in the room. And one guy said, you got a gun. Who did you get that gun to kill? You got that gun to shoot black men. And he just looked at him. He was so ferocious. And he stood there, and another man looked at him. And he said, listen, brother, I'm going to tell you something. He said, if you want to be afraid, he said, I'll tell you what to be afraid about. He said, I want you to look in the mirror. He said, who is it that invented nuclear weapons? Who is it that used them? Who is it that invented the machine gun, the landmine? Who is it that carried, you know... 50 million people in chains to this country. If you want to be afraid, you look in the mirror and you look at white people. Um, And the room started to get more and more hot because some white guy stood up and said, wait a second, you know, this man's got children, he's got a family, he's got to defend it. And it was like, it was very scary actually because the the passions and the um, fear that we have of one another is so great and so painful. It's really terrible. So we were all just sitting up in front and trying to breathe, Maladoma and Luis and I, thinking, okay, how are we going to get through this? And um, 
we had we took precepts on that retreat. We only take one precept. Um, that is that there be no physical violence. The rest you can say anything you need to. But anyway, so there we were. And then Ralph Steele, who was there, who's a colleague of mine, a Dharma teacher and an African-American man, stood up. And he looked around the room in the middle of this heat. He said, I live in New Mexico, he said, um, and everybody around me has guns. The people who live near me out in the country, they have guns to shoot and go hunting or to protect themselves. He said, I don't have a gun. He said, I had a gun when I was in Vietnam for two years. And we'd go out, our, you know, our unit would go out in the woods. We'd go out in the jungle. And most of the time we'd go out for a while and some of us wouldn't come back. My best friends, you know, every week, every month they'd get shot, they'd get killed over and over again. He said, and we'd go into villages and we'd go kind of going through the jungle and we'd get in this village and look around and there was nothing and then something would move and the guys would get spooked and they'd shoot up the whole village. He said, and there were people in my unit who got to like shooting human beings. He said, we didn't know what to do with those people. And then he looked around the whole room at everybody and he said, I don't know, I don't care who you are, you don't want a gun. He said, you don't want a gun because you've got to live a lifetime with it. He said, the guns come back in your dreams. You don't even want the memory of a gun in your hand. You don't want it. Not if you've seen what I've seen. And he just stood there for a while. And it was as if his understanding and his compassion was bigger than all the violence and the anger in that room. It was more human. This is from the Buddha, who, like Ralph, he speaks, he says, he beat me, he harmed me. He threw me down and robbed me. Cling to such thoughts and you live in hatred. He beat me. He harmed me. He threw me down and robbed me. Abandon these thoughts and live in love. In this world, hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And when one practices living by the Dharma, and dharma really means living by the truth of your heart, by your, by your deepest understanding. There comes a sensitivity where you don't want to cling, as the Buddha said. You see the mind that's engaged in clinging, in judgment, in discrimination, in hatred. You see it for what it is, and you let it go. And you live in a different reality that is more open and more honorable and more true. The art of living, says Alan Watts, is neither careless drifting on one hand nor fearful clinging to the past on the other. It consists in being completely sensitive to each moment, regarding it utterly new and unique, in having the mind and heart open and wholly receptive to what is now. And when we are open, if a child falls, we help them up. And if somebody's hungry, we feed them, because they're us. When we're open, that distinction, that difference, which is small and frightened, starts to fall away. And we live from that reality of who we really are. The end of this text, and the end of the talk now, the Buddha says, my friends, for someone who practices these establishments of awareness for seven years, nay, seven years, for seven months, nay, for seven months, seven weeks, 
not even seven weeks, for seven days fully, whoever practices the establishment of awareness of this human body fully, of these feelings fully, of this mind in its nature, and of the laws that govern this life, for even one week can expect the highest understanding in this very life can be awakened. So I asked my teacher Ajahn Chah, who said that one day in the monastery, I said, is that still true? Can it happen in seven days? And he said, yes. You know, and I'd had to start again and again, as you have, right? And then I realized it wasn't quite as easy as the Buddha made it sound in those. (laughs) But it is true. Your presence here and the integrity that you bring to your practice, the willingness to come back to your breath or to stay with the sensations of joy or pain in the body, to notice the feelings that come and go, to notice the fears and anger and judgment, and also to feel that space of compassion that can hold it all. That is what brings you to freedom. And nobody else can free you in this part. Like Nelson Mandela said, we've merely come to the freedom where we can be free. And you already have tasted it. I know you have. So the practice that we do together is to really embody that and deepen that and live that freedom. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you. Really stay. It's precious to have this space just to be aware. Um, Even if it's difficult, it's okay. It's supposed to be difficult sometimes. Or if it's easy, that's okay. Just stay with it. You can do it. So walking time now. (laughs) 